Weird Scenes inside the Gold Mine. You're essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of entertainment. Tonight, Richard Harris on the new and improved. Or should I say it like this? On the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network. Now on Podbean. So good evening and welcome to, I think it's the sixth episode of the 11th season of Weird Seasons of the Gold Mine. Your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze, the virago vituperiveness, who's going through shit that I went through a lot of years ago, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tonight, we are going to be talking Mr. Richard Harris, one of the more histrionic and amusing actors of the 60s and 70s, mostly. But we will be covering mostly his 70s period because, as usual, that seems to be his most interesting stuff. And honestly, like, I believe the next show we'll be doing, which is Clint Eastwood, Mm. that kind of was the golden age of cinema and, to some extent, television in the late 60s to the 70s. There really is no touching it otherwise. I mean, we touch on stuff from the 80s or from the 90s. Sometimes we even do shows like Bogart that go back to the 30s and 40s. But the golden age of cinema really was, and television, and comic books for that matter, was the 70s. There was something going on there that just everybody was putting their best foot forward. People were taking chances. There were a lot of young mavericks. And the boundaries were being pushed, you know, and stuff that we're still trying to do and failing these days. So, And without all the crap that came to CG and all the yeah. whatever else. Well, I mean, yeah, there, there are some mod. Oh, there's still good stuff being still made occasionally. Stuff, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the... the Golden Age, you know, I hate we used to make that term apply. Well, it is applied to classic adult cinema, but it was a golden age of... Uh, of porn, yeah. This is the 70s. We touched that. We did a show on it. Yeah, and there was a golden age of actors from the from Europe, uh, mm-hmm. particularly uh, UK, Scotland, Wales. We did a whole show on Michael Caine, and he's brought up many a times over the years. Yes. And, uh, and rightfully so. He's a great, great person. Great actor. Oh, great actor. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, he might be one of those guys like, oh, my God, it's Michael Caine. Get the fuck over here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, for, for reasons we discussed, even though they're understandable ones, he kind of does swing a little bit right these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. up there, too. Uh, yeah. So Richard Harris comes from that. See, you know, there's a group of them. Harris, Kane, Burton. Uh, help me out. Oh, you. we're doing a Burton show very soon, right. yes. Yeah, and there was, there was another one. And, and, and Oh, uh, Hopkins and uh, Gilgood. There was a bunch of them. Yeah. Hopkins and, yeah, Hopkins. Olivier. Know, Olivier. And when Hopkins was younger, there were some people that flitted through this, like Hemmings, David Hemmings. Yes, one. we did a show on him. Yeah. So anyway, we, those who've listened to our shows before. How about Oliver Reed? <laughs> Oliver Reed, right. Yeah. And those, those who listened to our shows before know that we do like career things and, and, and it to be... A bit, a bit of a blog. Hey, uh, what we're trying to do with this one, just picking some titles to discuss. Yeah, because I really didn't want to have to sit through like Camelot or something like that. No, yeah, no, whatever. No, it's, that's, that's fine. You know, we could just mention it, or I, you know, if there's yeah, something you, you haven't seen, I've seen, I could try to just briefly mention it. Like we always do, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we're gonna try not to make make some of these so like, oh my God, how long is this? You know, it's just. <laughs> No, right, because we're, we're trying to keep these in the spirit of fun and make it a yeah. fun listen. Okay. 
All right, so, born all the way back at the dawn of the talkies in 1930, Richard St. John Francis Harris was born to a, quote, flower merchant in Ireland, a gate that somehow allowed the family to purchase a fancy-schmancy place in a, quote, wealthy part of Limerick in the homonymously monikered county thereof. He was planning to go pro in rugby, but caught TB. He then decided to pursue directing, but wound up taking acting, for which he was rejected as too old at the whopping age of 25. Seriously? Nonetheless, he persevered doing summer stock and little theater for a full decade, until taking his first film roles in 1959. He was a particularly contentious sort, clashing with both directors and A-list actors, even in his earliest days, inclusive of Brando on Mutiny and the Bounty, which the 30-plus newcomer demanded and got third billing on, and he actually wound up working with one of my favorite art house directors, Michelangelo Antonioni, on Red Desert. He was in John Huston's The Bible, whose Sodom and Gomorrah sequence apparently inspired the aesthetics of both the hippie movement and the later 90s gothic fetish crowd, and of course the ridiculously overblown musical film that I mentioned earlier, Camelot. And that brings us to a 40-year-old Harris and one of his best-known roles in 1970s, A Man Called Horse. Mm. As a side note, before I start anything, he was perhaps akin to Oliver Reed, who we did a show on, somewhat of a boisterous drunk, and at least in the 70s, like many folks in entertainment, indulged a bit too much in the sniffy, which almost killed him around the time of the Wild Geese. And apparently he had sworn off both of those by the mid-80s. Like many a good Irishman, he was also a supporter of the IRA, which brought him a lot of heat, to the point where he had to at least publicly denounce his prior stance. Yeah, you mentioned Unity on the Bounty. This Sporting Life, a uh, film about, oh my gosh, uh, soccer. Not soccer, what do they call it? Uh, rugby? Rugby. Sorry, folks, rugby. He did win the Cannes Film Award for Best Actor. It's like only his seventh film role ever. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Nominated Academy Award for Best Actor, nominated a BAFTA Award for Best British Actor, New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actor. So it's, but it it was, ouch, it was it's a Lindsay Anderson film. So if anybody knows Lindsay Anderson, this one tend to be kind of unusual. But it's a bit of a slog to get through because it's rough, it's brutal. He's not a nice guy. It's a brutal film. Great, great acting in that. It's a, is it a film I recommend people take a look at? <laughs> also, I uh, wanted to make note of the heroes of Telemark. You know, we, we have upcoming Where Eagles Dare, which is a fantastic action yes. film. Heroes of Telemark has Kirk Douglas, Richard Woodmark, and a couple other guys, uh, including, uh, gosh, Michael Redgrave, Anton Diffring, you know. Yes. You need a German? Okay. Uh, <laughs> And it's, it's, it's an action film about, here's the thing, we have no resistance command against the Germans. I'm like, okay. It was like a bit of a, like an oddball picture to hang an action movie on. It was okay. It does, it does what it does, does it well. Now, you mentioned the Bible in the beginning, which is mm-hmm. John Huston's epic, unending film with the strangest cast ever. But it's the most watchable Bible slash religious film out there. <laughs> True. I mean, you got Michael Parks, Richard Harris, John Huston, who also directed. Stephen Boyd, everybody remember him? George C. Scott, Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Wow. Ava Gardner, who's like banging everybody on the set. Franco Nero. And on, and on, and on. And, and we have Cromwell. Where are you going to start with this, anyway? I was going to touch on Cromwell, but I never showed up. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just, and Cromwell's a Ken Hughes film. Ken Hughes was like a journeyman director. He did lots of bizarre films. I'm going to go into the, the CV there. But it was a period, late 60s, early 70s, did these kind of British costume dramas. 
Indians were very popular, and they were they were like everywhere, all over the place. Yeah, I don't know. I remember this film being, even as a kid, cause 1970, being very fucking violent for all these things. <laughs> you know, it, it was like pretty shocking. You know, it's like there was like guys on horses, and you know, hello, fair maiden. No, it's like bloody and and. He played uh, Oliver Cromwell, devout Puritan, country squire, magistrate, former member of parliament, you know, blah, blah, blah. You get expelled from the Church of England, and you have to fight the Church of England, who sends in the hordes of people. So then Oliver Cromwell has his people against the king's people. It's it's one of those very heady, very, not so much talky as, uh, what was it, Merchant Ivory films, right? Mm -hmm. Not so much as that, but uh, interesting thing. Uh, oh. Oh, gosh, I skipped Camelot. I'm sorry, folks. Oh, and I was going to say Cromwell may or may not have inspired one of Reverend Bazaar's best and most catchy songs, the titular named Cromwell. <laughs> and, folks, I'm sorry, I skipped Camelot. 1967 film. Yes, directed by Joshua Logan, the Broadway guy who occasionally mm -hmm. dabbled in film, uh, written by Alan J. Lerner, who actually was the Broadway guy who did a lot of lyrics and blah, 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 and words for Broadway songs. This is one strange movie. <laughs> it's a film version of the very, very, very popular for decades Broadway show, Camelot. Actually, Harris did this on Broadway years later. Richard Burton did this on Broadway years. Everybody did this on Broadway. But they only chose big names. Strangest fucking film you ever find from based on a Broadway thing because of the cast. We have David Hemmings, we just spoke of, mm -hmm. Franco Nero. Mm -hmm. This is one of his first appearances ever on English language speaking and on American screen. Vanessa Redgrave, Harris is the star, and Lionel Jeffries, we love Lionel Jeffries, and it's the strangest thing. You know, what's Camelot about? Folks, you have to look it up because the show's really about Richard Harris, but yeah. this was a big, big hit back in the day. And it's notable for anything more than... Frank O'Neill hooked up for Vanessa Redgrave on this yes. film and lived together for decades. Yeah, the person I I'd rather watch was the one they did together, Home in the Country or something, the ghost story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, something like that, yeah. It's, it's very strange. You know, Harris plays King Arthur, Vanessa Redgrave plays Guinevere, Frank O'Neill plays Lancelot, David Hemmings plays Mordred, Lawrence Naismith people recommend, uh, remember from Vampire Circus, among other things, plays in Maryland. I mean, it's quite good. It's just flashy. And then a lot of songs. And the thing is, I believe some people were overdubbed in the post-op. Yeah. I mean, post-op. What's up, that guy? <laughs> it's interesting, though, that the people who are originally going to be King Arthur, among them were Brando Gregory Peck and Peter O'Toole. And I could say I think Peter O'Toole could have done this. Peck and Brando, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I, I did want to mention Camelot before we jumped into Man Called Horse. Okay, Man Called Horse. Beat the drum and sound the brass, here comes one big horse's ass. <laughs> Harris is an overprivileged English silver spooner, born into money and position, who in a moment of existential crisis, resigned and left for the old west of 1800s America to shoot pheasant. He hired two inbred toothless hicks as companions slash guides who can't even spell three-letter words and whose idea of class revolt is to shoot holes in his portable brass bathtub and dump the water all over his tent. 
Yeah, sounds like typical MAGA Republicans, yeah. The, the crew are waylaid by a tribe of Sioux Native Americans who quite thankfully kill those two hicks and take a bathing Harris back to their settlement for a little abuse and humiliation. While they have fun treating him like an abused pet, the female elder shows a bit of mercy, and when he wakes at dawn, he makes his escape, only to be quickly recaptured to have spears and vegetables thrown at him for refusing to retaliate and spear the chief in the back, mind. I've had enough, you bunch of bloody bastards! I'm not an animal! I am a man! Eventually, he starts learning their ways and discovering empathy beyond just trying to escape from his abusive savages, like the grouchy old elder who lost her son and now has to scrounge for food, or how they start begrudgingly accepting his presence. He tries to gain the tribe's respect as a warrior, fighting alongside them against a rival tribe, and then marrying into a girl who's had her eyes on him, the latter for which he has to undergo the brutal Conan-esque ritual that the film is famed for hanging by hooks from trees. No scars, no vows. Buffy St. Marie called it the whitest movie she'd ever seen, but they did at least try to give a more dispassionate look at the tribes than was typical of westerns of the era, something like Corbucci's Navajo Joe being about the most sympathetic things had gotten at that point. The other issue is typical of Hollywood. His eventual wife was a Greek Miss Universe who probably committed career suicide by showing her tits on their first night together here. The old elder was Dame Judith Anderson of Rebecca, Laura, and the Strange Love of Martha Ivers. One of the Sioux leaders was a Fiji actor. You know, you get the idea. The point was that they tried and it opened the door for far better films to come, like Nightwing, Wolfen, and Shadow of the Hawk. Well-intentioned, but just another cheesy Western using modern eyes. But you didn't mention the horrific thing that happens to him. What, hanging from hooks? Yeah, sure. it's pretty brutal. It is. It's, it's, and he, I don't know, what's the term? How do we, you know, actors will do things for their heart. Yes. Okay. And, you know, we know actors are like, Bang co-actors, actors who, you know, we don't even think about Pacino and Cruz. We don't even want to go there. <laughs> you know, what actors will do, I'm not talking about the method, but, you know, like what actors will do for, uh, to really get immersed in their roles. But Harris apparently allowed Elliot Stilberstein, the director, and, and I guess the crew, to put these fucking meat hooks to his chest, to his pectoral muscles, and lift him up in the air. I mean, my I've God. heard that. I know there was a prosthesis involved, but I did hear a long time ago that, yes, he actually let them do something like that. I'm like, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. They, they used the prosthesis as a cover-up because, originally, because, uh, which is, it was rough to watch. Yes. Actually, the sequel's even rougher. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. You know, this, this was... I don't know. There were a couple movies around this time period. Uh, uh, Man in the Wilderness was another Richard Harris film, I think, right? And and even Robert Redford tried to go this route with Jeremiah, Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah Johnson, I thought you were going to say that, yep. <laughs> which, is, which is pretty fucking... I give him credit for that picture, man. That's a rough fucking movie. Yeah. Yeah, Redford did a lot of good stuff. I got, you know, he was a good-looking guy, God bless him, but he, he fucking, he went out there sometimes, and, and you weren't quite sure what he was doing. But, yeah, this is this is a rough movie, not a family film. No. So what happened? Somebody ring your doorbell, or was it a... <laughs> the well, chimes the of doom. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no, no, it's... The high priest ringing his little temple bell? Are we going to do a ritual now? <laughs> I wouldn't tell you. So what are we summoning? <laughs> I have secrets. Are we hailing the watchtowers? What's going on? <laughs> Go ahead. Excuse me, let me get some salt so I can clear the circle. Uh, would so... you... Would you... <laughs> there are things you don't know. It's, it's safer that way. Real. Yeah, we alluded to it in our Satan in the 70s show recently. Did we? No, shh. <laughs> uh, so, 
Uh, next up, he does Juggernaut in 1974. We took this British Nye Alistair MacLean come disaster film with strong elements of the Black Sunday two-minute warning terrorism suspense flick in our David Hemming show. Somewhat akin to his later Cassandra Crossing, this one features a cast of characters trapped in an effective old dark house situation, only with a terrorist plot rather than a mysterious killer putting everyone in jeopardy with no means of escape. Essentially, a terrorist plants a few bombs on a big-budget prestige cruise ship in an attempt to extort money from the owners. Unfortunately for everyone concerned, they get funding kickbacks from the taxpayers, and 10 Downing Street threatens to pull that if they pay him off as part of a national no-submission-to-terrorism initiative. Omar Sharif is on hand as the concerned ship captain, familiar character actor Roy Kinnear as the cruise director, and both Harrison Hemmings are bomb squad experts flown in in an attempt to defuse the situation, while Anthony Hopkins, another name we've mentioned many times over the last year or two, is the Scotland Yard man leading the onshore search for the titular codename terrorist, and of course his wife and kid are on that very cruise, how convenient. Oh boy, what's going on here? (laughs) Big doing that. So, why they went without him, who the hell knows, they're British. It's a damn sight slower pace than the Irwin Allen-style American disaster film, but several of these folks are actually likable, even showing moments of heroism, like Kinnear with his efforts to keep everyone cheered up in the face of all this, or the Indian ship steward who finds one of the kids sneaking around down around the bomb squad and saves it only to get caught by the blast himself. You really don't have to enjoy disaster films, much less terrorist suspense of the era, to like this one. It's rather decent. Yeah, there's actually uh, one or two of these out there, from the Brit standpoint, that are quite good. There's one with Richard Johnson. You remember that one? Gosh, mm. Yeah, what the hell was um, that one? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a little similar to this. And so th- this was funny because, you know, we had all those Aaron Allen things, you know, towering in front of an earthquake, blah, blah, blah. So why not get on the bandwagon, you know? <laughs> and, and Juggernaut was interesting that they they really threw out a lot of posters, a lot of lobby cards, but there were very few trailers you could actually find from this thing. They just figured it would sell itself based on the cast, which was a very reputable cast. You know, Richard Harris, Omar Sharif, Hemmings, Hopkins becoming a name, Freddie Jones. You know, and, and around this time period, we are just pre-I-Claudius, which is blow out every major British character actor and make them like household status. <laughs> you know, if you look, if you guys, if you know what I'm saying, when I-Claudius hit BBC... And then was shown on American uh, public broadcasting channels like uh, in the New York area or the Northeast area was called Channel 13. All of a sudden, people are like, oh, who is this? Who is that? Even Patrick Stewart was here. You know. <laughs> but anyway, so this is a very interesting film. It's very, it's, it's decent. It's decent. And um, Richard Lester directed, you know, of uh, Beatles fame. Mm-hmm. And. Later, Superman thing. <laughs> Richard Lester's like an enigma. Yeah, he had an odd career. <laughs> he had an odd career. Yo, he worked on Hard Day's Night, mm-hmm. and he did the Three Musketeers movies, yep. which I'm still not sure at my age how I feel about. <laughs> um, I don't know, I kind of like them, but yeah. He did Superman 2. Yes. Actually, worked on Superman 1, but there's something going on there. He did the dreadful Superman 3, but it's okay. <laughs> he did Robin and Marion, which is a very sweet movie. I'm about to get to that one. And, you know, he did the most fucking weirdest movie I ever saw. Well, amongst the Ritz, which we we spoke of one time. I don't know how it came up. Now, who the hell was in that? No, the Ritz. The Ritz was this. It was a Broadway 
almost hit with Jack Weston, Rita Moreno, Jerry Stiller, Kate Ballard, you remember Kate Ballard? Sure, yeah. F. F. Murray Abraham and a bunch of other fucking people. Oh, she was a 40 swing singer, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. And, she, and when she got older, she was like a comedian on TV. Mm-hmm. And it was a Terrence McNally. It was basically a huge off-Broadway hit. I, I really don't remember if it was a Broadway hit. And here's the thing. Oh, Rita Moreno. I mentioned Rita Moreno. So here's the yeah. thing. So this mob guy hides in a gay bathhouse. Okay. <laughs> they were popular back in the 70s. You know, there's yes. no denying that. And I know guy, plenty of guys who went to bathhouses. Just say, hello, you want to get off? Go to a gay bath. No, no, no. <laughs> Vapors so in this was a fucking funny movie. I went with some straight guys. When it was played in the theater, we said, hey, let's go see this. <laughs> And we laughed the shit out of this thing because mm-hmm. it was like a weird movie because, you know, you had this mob guy hanging out. And, you know, he meets these people like, who are you? I'm a chubby chaser, but you're not chubby. He's <laughs> like, what? What's a chubby chaser? <laughs> and then there was another thing like, um, there's a famous line in there. But gosh, I can't remember it now. But uh, there were there was so many funny fucking things in here. That, you know, Rita Moreno became a gay icon from this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, other things too, but Jack Weston, Jerry Stiller. Oh, yeah, Jerry Stiller, yeah, he played Carmine. He's hanging in there, and after Mary Abraham is like this queen. So he played a queen. And there was one scene where it goes, uh, you know, Jerry Stiller was like, Where are they? Where are they? You know, Jerry Stiller was. And after Mary Abraham goes, They're in that room there, but bring the oil, <laughs> Crisco oil. <laughs> What are you talking about, Crisco Oil? No, bring Crisco Oil. He goes, what are you talking about, Crisco Oil? No, 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 don't tell Larry. Just bring, just go in there and say Crisco. <laughs> don't, they'll slather you. And I was like, so fucking laughing. <laughs> but people, we, we often digress in the show. <laughs> as, as I just did. So, yes, two, near, two years after making this British suspense action movie, this come disaster film, Yes, Richard Lester, who made the Beatles movies, made this probably a bomb, unpopular film version of a uh, gay off-Broadway hit. But anyway, so <laughs> I like Juggernaut. I thought it was quite yeah. interesting as for doing what it was. Don't you guys love when I digress? Of course, that's what it's all about. So uh, you mentioned Robin and Mary in 1976. Harris hams it up to parodically hilarious degree as King Richard the Lionhearted in this oddball take on the old English legend of Robin Hood, originally entitled The Death of Said Character. Sean Connery, who we did a show on without covering this mid-70s costume epic, stars as a grumpy, aging Robin with an even older, if more wizened and less humorless, Little John, and Nicole Williamson, who presumably should have been cast by a far larger and more burly actor, no? The film takes place just after the Crusades, and Maid Marian has taken Shakespeare at his words, if not its actual connotations, and gotten herself to a nunnery in his absence. After Harris is killed off early in the proceedings, presumably due to cast and director being sick of his overbearing and absurd performance, they rally the local yokels into an impromptu militia and wind up going after the Sheriff of Nottingham, who remains up to his old tricks. Connery kills his old nemesis, but is badly wounded, so Marion takes him back to the convent, where she poisons them both because she figures he's not worth living with as a war-wounded veteran. Somehow this act of selfishness is supposed to be, quote, romantic. Say, what the fuck? 
this absurd, somewhat grotty piece of shit was delivered like a flaming bag of poo to our doorstep by none other than Richard Lester, who had given us far superior work like the Beatles' Hard Day's Night in Hell, Superman 2, and the Oliver Reed 3 and 4 Musketeers films, which we had discussed in our Oliver Reed show. And the Reds. <laughs> and the Reds. This one can only really be compared to the disastrous Superman 3 with Richard Pryor in his filmography. A star-studded stinker that must have hung around his neck like a dead albatross. Terrible film, and Harris is at his most John Carradine-level hammy here. There was a great skit on SCTV where one of them played Harris on Nell's Rockpile, the disco-era American bandstand, where he came on to sell his version of the awful MacArthur Park and wound up freaking out, being ridiculously demanding to the host and demanding full attention while frugging for several minutes at a time of the never-ending song. If there was ever a film performance of Harris's that matched that parody, this is it. <laughs> What's your take? Well, you know, okay, 1976, so we're thinking the mid to late 70s. This appealed mildly to our parents, yours and mine, probably, probably yeah. and others as well. This wasn't a movie that appealed to the to the parents of people who, in the mid to late 70s, children who were in their 20s, let's say. Sounds about right. Well, for me. And, yeah, Mighty Richard Parker Lester. I just spoke about some weird shit, and, you know, you, you, you filled in some things. This is a weird movie because I can't imagine a drinking budget on this thing. <laughs> you had Connery, you had Shaw, Nicole Williamson, Ronnie Barker, Ian Holm, great actors, Kenneth Hague. You know, I mean, these are terrific actors on the stage and on the screen. Mm. And Harris... What it is, is a Robin Hood as if years later. I was never a huge fan of Audrey Hepburn. Please don't crucify me. I won't. I hate her, too. <laughs> not as much as her mother, I, I, but yeah. I, I wouldn't say I hate the woman. I, 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 well, it's not like I a would... visceral, like, I can't stand this woman totally, but it's just like, I can't think of anything she did that I liked or any performance that she had that was even acceptable. She, well, she never appealed to me because I, I do like the spinner type. <laughs> Uh, look it up, Google it. But I, she just, she always seemed emaciated. She always seemed like she was on death's door. And it was like, yeah, like no Twiggy. shot when she like, yeah. Well, worse yeah. than Twiggy. Twiggy looked like she had me. Twiggy was more appealing to me, especially later in the yeah. 70s. <laughs> no, no, Twiggy looked like she was like, she had more going on. And, and no, I'm no kidding aside. I'm sure some people. Uh, oh, some people love her, especially in the gay community. Some people love Audrey Hepburn and some people, rightfully so. Hey, you know you're every we I, I have and you have and we have always gone through this. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. It's all subjective. But like for me, I just never, never understood or dug the the over the top admiration for Audrey Hepburn. She looked like a wave, and mm -hmm. I mean, especially when she was pitted against Cary Grant. Yeah. Oh, I don't. Cary Grant's the man, and you know. He was swaggering when he wasn't even trying. They put them in a couple of pictures together, and I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, even somebody like uh, Eva Marie Saint. Okay. Oh, know I like Eva Marie Saint, especially from North by Northwest. Right. When she was in that movie with Cary Grant, it was like, I know what they were doing on the train. Wasn't quite as smoky as, uh, what's her name, Grace Kelly with him in To Catch a Thief, but it was up there. Yeah, yeah, right. That I can see, and I agree. But, but... It's like I was telling somebody today. Everybody has different tastes and different opinions about everything, especially when it involves quote-unquote entertainment, you know, films, music, whatever. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. That's that's good. It's healthy. 
But the problem is, especially online these days, is that there's people like us that basically spend our lives absorbing this stuff and studying it and whatever. They, we're technically, we can call ourselves experts, especially when all these morons and DVD extras consider ourselves experts. We know more than them, which is, happens a lot, surprising a lot. But, you know, the point is, at least when you hear somebody like us tell our opinions, respect that as, okay, well, here's an expert talking about this. I disagree with them. Fine. Move on. Not... You know what? I'm a dumb fucking teenager, and I know more than them. Ha uh-huh. Fuck you. You don't know shit, kid. Wake up. And we see a lot of that online. Yeah, yeah. And point taken. And, and, yeah, and the other thing, too, is if you don't agree with something we say yeah, that's all right. Who cares? about something, doesn't mean you should turn off the show. No, give it a shot if you're interested. Yeah, keep listening, because it's always fun to come. Yeah, well, you're talking about us. I was just thinking about the films themselves. But, yeah, definitely. No, no, you never know where we're going to go. We're talking about us, but you know, we're newbies. We're yeah. newbies. Oh, if you're not accustomed to us, yeah. Beware. There are some very fun shows out there. Let's put it that way. Uh, I do want to mention before Juggernaut, I don't know if you had this on your plan, 99 and 44, it's 100% I dead. wanted to see that one. I, it came up a couple times, and not just with Harris, because I think it was also with uh, George Siegel and... Nobody has the damn thing. I'm like, I want to see this thing, but I can't. Yeah, this this is only able to be found as a uh, print-on-demand thing. I forgot from the studio. I forget which studio it was. Probably Warner or something. Or MGM. Warner. Yeah. It was a John Frankenheimer picture from 1974. Okay, he's late in the game, right, folks? Allegedly, this was 99 and 44% pure. Which is a like, joke based on an IV commercial, just saying. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so John Frankenheimer, all freaking people, directs, how do we even put this? A, do you remember those Italian uh, comic books where they call them photo? What, the Fumetti? Yeah, Fumetti. Yeah. It was like a, a, a photo Fumetti. It was like they were, Fumetti was very popular in Italy. There were those photo novels with blurbs and, and pictures of actors and actresses and various poses, some scantilating, you know, and they told weird stories. Mm-hmm. And Fumetti was a, a thing for a long time. And so much had an idea to adapt Fumetti to an action movie thing. And bring John Frankenheimer was probably totally fucking clueless. <laughs> But then and Richard Harris is going out with Ann Turkle, who was a uh, bosomy playboy chick. I was going to say in the 50s, she was a hot number. Yeah, yeah. And, and so she had to be in everything, much like Chuck and uh, Jill Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, who else wants to be in this thing? Like, nobody's knocking on the door. So they threw in Chuck Connors. You know, he's a big star. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Brad Trap Billman. Yeah. <laughs> Brad Billman and Evan O'Brien, mm-hmm. who's big time, was back in the day. And it, it was, it's probably one of the most bizarre things I ever saw. And I wish I wish I could unsee it. It's <laughs> over long and nearly two hours. Right. You know, Richard Harris plays like the coolly named Harry Crown. Okay. It like, sounds like Michael Caine's. You yeah, know. Crown Affair or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, you always has these cool pistols, but the movie has pop-ups, you know, like, like... Like Batman. Yes, yes, just like Batman. And it's supposed to be this, it's just made too late in the game for this thing. There's dead on arrival. No wonder why you very rarely will see this. Somebody will probably in the coming years mm-hmm. put it back out. But who the hell knows? <laughs> it's a strange one. I just wanted to mention it to you guys. For those who are masochists... <laughs> Uh, look up 99 and 44. It's 100% dead. It's 
you might be a, there might be a cult rising. I mentioned this now. Like people are like, really, this is great. Well, I'll tell you, I had never heard of the Ritz before, but, you know, as a diehard fan of cruising, as we discussed in our Pacino show, I would like to see this now. It sounds funny. <laughs> you have to see the Ritz. You know why? Why? There, there was some fucking funny shit in there. Yeah, it sounds like I'm, I'm shocked. I, I Seriously, bro. I am shocked nobody's put this back out. Maybe because of the subject matter? Mm-hmm. You would think everybody's okay with gay stuff now. Yeah, exactly. And they're, I'm sure, okay with it just because, you know, I'm camp. <laughs> like, oh, my God, look how they did this. <laughs> oh, it's so camp. But, damn, was, I was heterosexual. Still am, by the way, folks. <laughs> what? <I'm> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that was. <laughs> no, no, I still am. No, I was a heterosexual. <laughs> I thought this shit was so funny because I, I understood everything. You know, I, I get it. I got it. I remember you going on about Jean-Claude Van Damme's ass in that last show. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme. You know, it's like, no, I, you no, can bounce quarters off it. <laughs> all right, next. All right, so, <laughs> so next up is the sequel to A Man Called Horse, Return of A Man Called Horse. There is no evil spirit, only evil men. Despite being married off to a pretty local girl and even made tribal chief in the last film, a far more aged-looking Harris has apparently gone back to his old life in English aristocracy between movies. While he's probably a bit touched to leave that wonderfully decadent castle estate the film lovingly lingers over, his pompous local lady friend is entirely unimpressive and looks to be a real bore in the sack or otherwise, so naturally he opts to head back to his simpler, more earthy, and lusty tribal life with the suit. His tribal wife must have passed because the only woman given a lick of screen time in this film is the spider woman herself, Gail Sondergaard, as a particularly wizened elder. That ain't the only thing that changed, though. From dominating nasty types, they become the polar opposite, weak-willed and forced off their sacred lands by sleazy trappers, given the support of the U.S. government to do so. Worse, these pricks abuse, kill, and send the natives off into slavery, leaving them bummed out and praying to some ineffectual and unnamed evil spirit to take out the trappers and restore them to their proper place. Harris returns bearing gifts. The survivors are happy to see him, taking it as a sign, but the medicine man pisses all over their parade, demanding his gifts be offered to save evil spirit instead. The rest of the running time is wasted on Harris listening to complaints, tripping on mushrooms, smoking the peace pipe, and watching a youngster undergo the exact same ritual with the hooks that he did last time around, until he finally manages to rally the tribe into retaliation, roll credits before they even start to. What a fucking waste. While Harris delivers one of his more subtle performances in these two films, really breaking out into theatricality and overblown actor staginess and over-dramatization, there was simply no reason whatsoever to make the sequel, save the almighty dollar sign the success of the original promise. That's a total piece of shit. You'll wish he stayed in England just so he could see more of his estate before you're halfway through this cheap-ass cash-in. And they actually had the balls to make a third one after this. Can you believe that? Yeah, I can't recommend this one. Even though you mentioned Harris sees someone else undergo this before he does it again, which makes yeah. it twice in a row. And I even thought that hanging by the pectoral muscles was even more rough for this time. I was like, fuck, come on, man. <laughs> No, well, really? it's the only hook they had to sell it on. Yeah, there are things... Get the pun? <laughs> Some actors will do... Uh, you know, we just went through this. And Oddball, Oddball Side Note was is directed by Irvin Kirshner. Right, who's this? Guy who didn't work a hell of a lot. Is he really lot. the Don? The rock concert guy? <laughs> no, Irvin Kirshner director, director made this movie. So, why am I bringing up his name? Because... Not only did 
he do spies, which we covered in Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland shows. Yes. And he directed Eyes of Laura Mars, above average John Carpenter scripted film. Mm-hmm. He did The Empire Strikes Back and Never Say Never Again. Oh, yeah. So he's done some good work, but he's only done a few films in his lengthy, lengthy career of doing whatever the fuck he does. But I I, I can't recommend this film to anyone because it's it's hard to sit through. If you're going to see A Man Called Horse, see the original. Yeah. And you mentioned Never Say Never Again. We didn't cover it in our Sean Connery in the 70s show because that was other stuff beyond Bond. But we did three Bond shows. So you're welcome to go back and listen to those to hear about that one. The Cassandra Crossing is next. 1976, same year. He's doing a lot of stuff in the same year here. On paper, it sounds like a winner. Some dumpy loser, one-third of a self-styled, quote, terrorist group who didn't get gunned down in the effort, swipes a Geneva Convention-flaunting production sample of the bubonic plague from the World Health Organization. He then proceeds to run his fat, sweaty self onto a Trans-Europe Express-style train headed from Switzerland to Sweden. When his location is tracked, the government gets the swell idea to reroute the train to some fucking abandoned concentration camp in Poland, likely Stuttgart of all places, to face quarantine. The disturbing overtones are blatant, but that's apparently not the crux of the film, is that they have to go over a long, disused bridge to the camp, the Kassandrov, also known by the title of the film, and it's likely to collapse under the weight of the train. Meantime, a real starfucker cast goes into their usual disaster film shtick, with plenty of sordid and amusing asides and odd little relationships to get the audience invested, and it's got a few that's a little seedier than you might expect. This one comes from Sir Lou Grade, who gave us a plethora of amusing Starfucker films. But interestingly, this one was a co-production with none other than Carlo Ponti. So you know what that means. Sophia Loren still holding on to it and more or less pulling off her earlier sex pot shtick. And a scene or two where she's in what appears to be a merry widow, though she's on a film from her ample breasts up. Ample. Amusingly, she's ostensibly yep. both the... F- <laughs> yes, they are ample. Loren was quite a looker, and even into the 80s, she was pretty damn good looking. And ample. <laughs> <laughs> More than a handful. Amusingly, she's ostensibly both the former beau of a ratty-looking Richard Harris. Yeah, I buy that one. And like several others on the train, tied to that very camp in some way. In her case, she's supposed to be a Holocaust survivor, as is method creator Lee Strasberg, who's also on board. Harris is supposed to be a neurologist of all things. Martin Sheen is the frustrated kept boy for beefy nice senior citizen Ava Gardner, who's actually married to a gunrunner, and Sheen is actually a drug smuggler. If it does not fit, you must acquit, but I did it. Author O.J. Simpson is an ostensible priest who's actually a G-man chasing Sheen. And that's not to mention the usual annoying kid and all the fun and hysteria that happens when the plague starts to spread among the passengers, the bridge scare, and more. It's like a goddamn soap opera of unintentional comedy. There are plenty of others involved, like Burt Lancaster, the aforementioned shithead government official, who's planned this whole thing to remove all evidence of America working germ warfare in, of all places, neutral Switzerland. Salon Kitty's Ingrid Thulin is a WHO official, World Health Organization, obviously. Ray Lovelock cameos as one of the terrorists. Alita Valli of Bava's Lisa and the Devil. DiMartino's excellent The Antichrist. Argento Suspiria. And the ridiculous Anita Ekberg nunsploiter Killer Nun is here as well. So is John Philip Law in Humanoids from the Deeps and Turkle, as you mentioned before. Even Carlo DeMejo of Fulci's City of the Living Dead and House of the Cemetery and Manhattan Baby, Coates' Contamination, and Matei's The Other Hell. Lionel Stander of Heart to Heart is present as the conductor, but he's even named Max here. Harris restrains himself here, even more so than in similar de facto disaster film Juggernaut, so we can choke this one up to his good column. I do have one major issue with this film, and that's the aesthetics. 
in no way, shape, or form does it look or feel like a 70s film, whether cult or mainstream. The look and feel are overly bright and glossy to the point of being washed out, like an 80s TV movie or something. And this is off the Blu-ray. It's obviously spent a lot on this, but it just doesn't feel right. I was expecting a lot more when I first saw it and left extremely disappointed. A recent reviewing for the show proved it far more entertaining in certain aspects than I remembered, but it's not really my idea of a train film, and I usually love those, from serials and noirs to Agatha Christie films to cult and Italian horror like Terror Train, Night Train to Terror, and such like. While the script and cast are fun stuff, ultimately this one just comes off as way too Hollywood, if not at least Spielbergian in look and feel for my taste. I know you love this one, so what's your take? I really like this one. I, I always like this one. When you have something that runs over two hours, it's, uh, That's always a problem. Yeah, it's always a problem. It's, unless you have a really hungry, kinetic director. What was that thing? Train to Busan, South Korean film from about two or three years ago, where the guy was fresh, out of the box. He made, like, one of the most exciting films. So, you know, this is um, George Pan Cosmotos, great director, who actually, later on, would make... <laughs> Rambo. And that, Didn't he also do Escape to a Theater? Or is that yes, he did Escape that? to a Theater. Yes. But, but when he worked with Stallone, he did a pretty fucking terrific Stallone picture. But this is still early on. And, and yo, I get what you're saying. There's something missing. Some, yeah. Something, but, you know, you can't have everything. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty good for what it does. And, you know, a lot of movies from this time period were doing these big fucking cast, but because this is from the unusual uh, conjunction <laughs> of Grade and Ponte, yeah. Yeah, of Grade and Ponte, you because know, Luke Grade created this thing called ITC. Yes. And ITC was, was supposed to be the uh, UK super movie thing. And, and what was the film branch of his ITV, which put out so many excellent British shows that we had covered? Yeah, like UFO and, and Space yes. 1999. Right, exactly. And so he, he came up with this idea, and he just saw more of misses than his, like a Domino Principal, Gene Hackman, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The, the one with the, with the guy from uh, uh, from My Name is Nobody. Oh, uh, Terrence Hill. Terrence Hill, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A march or die. Mm-hmm. So you know, he had more misses than hits, but occasionally he would have a near massive hit, and that was this. Mm-hmm. So I would say near massive hit because, yeah, I agree. There's something off about this, something that doesn't work. But for the most part, I think it's it works quite well. I like it a lot. You know, love is a different thing. But I I like it a lot. I really do like it a lot. And, and there's at some point. It's past midpoint toward the end of the film where it's like, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. Yeah, it picks up, as you Yeah, it picks up. And, you know, Harris, yeah, Harris seemed to be invested in this role for whatever reason. You know, he's just probably like, I'm going to go with this. I'm going to make my priorities, you know, and Sophia Loren still looking great. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to go along with this ride because my husband co-produced it. (laughs) (laughs) Burt Lancaster is at the point where he's doing his sitting at the desk thing. Yes. He did this pretty much for uh, a decade. For a couple of pictures mm. around this, this time period until he decided to undo it with Twilight's Last Gleaming. Uh, I'm not sure we ever covered that. Mm, I don't think so. Yeah, Robert Aldrich's picture. Martin Sheen, before going into the Philippines for five fucking years for Apocalypse Now, is in here in a weird kind of role I don't want to get into, but you guys should. Yeah, he's a you know, Martin Sheen fan. He's pretty good. Yeah, it's, he reminded me of uh, Michael Douglas, but more raw. Yeah, yeah, more raw. But Lee Strasberg, you know, actor studio guy. Ava Gardner, who do everybody on the set, young or old, is in this. 
OJ, you know, OJ is fine. You know, you know, I have to make this weird statement. Whatever the fuck happened, whatever he did, stupidity he got involved in, whether he did it or not, he was an okay guy as an actor. Now, he did some good movies back when. I mean, at least he was a, yeah. a member of a bunch of good movies. And yeah, he was, yeah. you know, people loved him for sports. He was a big hero, and then he got involved with Crystal Meth and fucked up. Got off and then wrote a book saying I did it. So I <laughs> really. <laughs> ah, no, it's good. Now for you, Euro trash lovers like you just mentioned, got John Philip Law, who's actually okay in this. Alita Bali, Castell, Lovelock, you know, the list goes on. I I like it. You know, the movie actually could have went into yeesh territory if the, if the train went off the bridge and everybody died. Yeah. But of course, it's not 2022, and I've seen a lot of those lately. I've seen a lot of train movies in the past six months where shit happens and like the train gets blown up at the last second or the train, the bridge collapses. I'm like, why did I spend two and a half hours watching this? You know, what's a great train movie and it's not one you would normally think of bullet train from, um, not the new one. I haven't seen that one yet, but the one from Sonny Chiba. Sonny Chiba. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I've, I've heard interesting things about the new one too as well. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay, so, I, we come to a film next that I would like to have seen, 1977's Golden Rendezvous. It's another Alistair McLean thriller who gave us such terse, nice spy thrillers as The Satan Bug, Where Eagles Dare, When Eight Bills Toll with Anthony Hopkins, my personal favorite of his, Puppet on a Chain, The Charlotte Rampling Caravan of Icarus, The Charles Bronson Breakheart Pass, even the ridiculous Michael Dudikoff slash Donald Pleasant's film, River of Death, many of which were discussed in our shows on Rampling, Bronson, Pleasance, and Canon Films. Amusingly enough, he apparently got into it with a producer who sued him for being a drunk on set, but that's all I know about it. So, have you seen this one? I have, uh, years ago, not in a long time. Uh, I think it was shot in South Africa, maybe for financial reasons. I have no idea who the director was. It had an interesting clip. You know, Dorothy Malone was in it, Leigh Lawson, who was, you know, John Carradine. John Vernon, it was like David Jansen. It was like, I don't know what's going on with this. I haven't seen it in at least a decade and a half, so I, my memory is very poor of this. I did watch this, but sorry, I can't really comment on it. So, Orca the Killer Whale, 1977. Treated with kindness, there is no creature that is a greater friend to man. But if not, like human beings, they have a profound instinct for vengeance. We covered his Dino De Laurentiis attempt to cash in on the box office success of Jaws a year prior in our Charlotte Rampling show. Sadly, despite the presence and leading roles for both the sexy, icy dominatrix-slash-decadent Rampling and Richard Harris, as well as the just-pre-infamy Bo Derek, Keenan Hell Satan Wynn, Doctor Strange and Glorious Bastards and Night Killer star Peter Hooten, and Revenge of the Nerds Robert Carradine, all jocks ever think about is sports, all nerds ever think about is sex. As unfortunate fellow crew members, the film not only fails to recapture the hawksy intention and realism of the generally execrable Spielberg, but turns out to be nearly impossible to watch due to an important plot hook that literally drives the narrative of the entire film. Harris and crew are out hunting sharks to sell their aquariums at a huge profit. When they run into marine biologist and college professor Rampling, they're nearly waylaid by one, only to be saved by one of their few natural predators, a killer whale. And here, right in the first ten minutes of the film, is where things go very ugly. Harris decides it'd be more profitable to nab a killer whale. Being a fucking moron, he spears and captures a pregnant female instead of a male, causing her to miscarry. The bloody mother screams for her lost pup, which she blasts off the side with water, and dies soon afterwards. 
While he frets and goes to the local priest out of belated remorse, the bereaved mate goes after him and his crew, even finding his shoreside home and mutilating his wife, as well as terrorizing the local boating community and capsizing one fishing trawler after another. Finally, there's a Frankenstein meets Moby Dick face-off, and Harris gets his comeuppance, but what a rough going it is. Were we supposed to root for the goofily, thickly Irish-accented Harris, despite his being in the wrong from minute one as a mercenary venture capitalist of sorts, then as a hapless double murderer for no reason or profit whatsoever? Fuck this guy! I was rooting for the damn whale the whole time, especially after hearing those horrific whale shrieks and pain cries in the aforementioned scene. And just how did they get that sound anyway? Was someone torturing whales? Could they have been some odd foley thing, perhaps? But... It sure sounded realistic. Awful, and not for anything the actors did. Harris's overemphasized Barry Fitzgerald light accent aside. So what's your take? Yeah, I, I agree with you on this. They really fucked up on this one. They, they wanted to make an adventure film in the vein of Jaws. And, yeah, what's up with those recorded real sounds? It was a big, big mistake. Because, first of all, you're, you're turning the audience against the actors in the film. And, and then you're, like, rooting for the whale. Yep. I mean, uh, rampling aside, because she was ostensibly on the right side of this, but geez. Yeah, no, 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 rampling aside, but yeah, no, I agree on that. But I'm just saying some, something went wrong, and, and it probably was on the production. Maybe not Michael Anderson has done some very well-respected films in his career, but it could have been Dino De Laurentiis thing. You know, remember, Dino De Laurentiis is the known guy for those bigger, better, bigger, better. Yeah, remember his horrible King Kong with Jessica Lange? <laughs> which is around this time period. And, yep. and, and, you know, his idea of seeing Jaws and how much money was pouring into the bank, he probably decided, oh, hey, you know. Cash in. <laughs> yeah, we could do this and we could do it bigger, better. Hey, let's let's make let's make the um, the mother whale. What's more scary than a shark? What's his enemy? Okay, a killer whale. But, let's do that. But then, then they decide to do weird shit. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> And then they gut it open. You remember that scene? It's like, no. Yeah, it was disgusting. It was so... I, I mean, I don't know how much of it was actually faked and how much it wasn't, because this was 1977. Mm-hmm. But holy shit. I mean, people complain about Diodato, but this was worse. Trust me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like, you want to get vegan? Watch this from. Yeah. It's like... Yeah. Exactly. It's enough to make you into a vegan, you're right. Not only that, but send you to fucking PETA, who are crazy themselves. (laughs) So, next up, The Wild Geese, 1978. There we go. (laughs) Some of you know me already. Those of you who don't, you're in for a great big fucking surprise. Apparently, ex-military don't just turn into far-right militia loons. They also become hitmen. Who knew? Sure enough, the film opens on Richard Burton, an ex-colonel turned professional hitman, met at the airport by Stuart Granger of King Solomon's Mines and the Piero Umiliani scored Eurospy, wrecking him for a secret agent, which we had discussed in our Eurospy show. Granger, looking for all the world like a cut-rate John Pertwee with his pale blonde frightwig perm, wants Burton to recruit a band of fellow murder-for-hire types to abscond with a kidnapped African politician in the hands of an Idi Amin-type self-styled general. Roger Moore is up next as a hitman with a conscience who's so upset about taking a job as a drug mule, he forces the sleazebag drop-off man to eat a full bag of heroin, which he then informs of his lace with strychnine. What a guy, my hero. He's the first one contacted by Burton for this Suicide Squad meets Dirty Dozen, followed by a reluctant Harris who's turned single-parent homebody. After a meeting with the three of them, Granger and two-timing star of Night of the Big Heat and the voice of Rex Van Ryn from Hammer's best film, The Devil Rides Out, 
chickens in a basket, diagrams on the floor, Patrick Allen, as an unnamed but very interested government official. The recruiting begins, including Ronald Fraser of Fathom, Renta Dick, David Niven's Paper Tiger, and Mary Millington's Come Play With Me, which we talked about keeping the British End Up show. When they get to the target compound in nearby village, Frank Finley of Life Force and the Deadly Bees, which we talked on our Toby Hooper and Amicus shows, respectively, turns up as an Irish priest who offers some local support. Naturally, in true heist-slash-escape film form, most of them wind up dead, and the mission is a decidedly qualified success. Like a lot of these pseudo-war heist extraction operation films of the era, it's a lot more watchable in the setup where all the big names and a few less notable but quite familiar character actors get to strut their acting chops and character business, then it turns into an explosion-filled snooze fest when the supposed exciting action bullshit ensues. I personally have literally fallen asleep in the theater many times during the exciting thrill sections of superhero films like The Avengers and Wonder Woman. It happened during both of those two for sure, that's why I mentioned those, but there are others. While being interested and aware, if not riveted in the far less dunderheaded dramatic sequences. So if you're one of those dim bulb adrenaline junkies, you'll be sure to think they're reverse, but fuck that shit. If I wanted a roller coaster ride, I'd go to a theme park, not a goddamn film. So yeah, the first half is much more watchable than when explosions start. Otherwise, not bad. No, it's not bad. I, I like it more than you do. It's like, uh, what was it? <laughs> Who's the producer of this? It doesn't matter. It's like, all right, so we got the budget. Uh, so h- how much how much liquor are we buying? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we have Mr. Burton. Richard Harris, Richard Mr. Burton. Mr. Moore, Mr. Harris, <laughs> Hardy Kruger, Frank Finley. Um, who else? Oh, Jack Watson drinks a lot. We know Stuart Granger. It's why we haven't had him around long time, isn't it? Okay, so... Uh, you know there was open bar in the whole set all Yeah, time. open bar, right? It's like, <laughs> so, oh, oh, that's the budget per day? Oh, let's see. Let's see. What is your per diem? How many bottles? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's your per diem? Do, sir, do, do you like to eat food? <laughs> Would you like a cucumber sandwich with that? That was pretty good, actually. I, thought, I give myself a pat on the back for a genuine, decent action. Tell a good chap. <laughs> See that? I said they're probably a fucking nightmare for the for those guys. You know, like, all right, can you can, can you put that down? It's, it's time for the see. How, how many cases do we have to strip in again? <laughs> but you know what? You know what? Okay, all, all joking aside, I think it, it's fine entertainment, and it's nice to see these guys together. Yeah, and Burton and Harris do a good job. More is his usual self, maybe a little bit less so, but you know, the three of them are pretty decent. They're pretty, pretty, pretty decent. And, you know, Hardy Krueger, uh, who, who we essentially knew from this time period, and a bit earlier, for playing a de facto evil fuck German <laughs> in many films. It was nice to see him play, like, this mercenary who actually changes during the film. That was nice that they actually can pull that off. And they, I think they did in a bit, in a bit of a way. And Frank Finley didn't get much airtime, but, you know, he's always respectable. We talked about him in Life Force for one. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, big mustache Jack Watson. <laughs> it's funny. Every, yeah, I don't know what happened to me, but every time I see Jack Watson with that big mustache, I'm like, why am I thinking you were like a, a gay British drama? <laughs> like one of those, uh, what was Oliver Reed doing with Ken Russell? Uh, those D.H. Lawrence adaptations? <laughs> yeah, I'm like... There's stuff we don't know about you, boy. You know, <laughs> Let's do some nude wrestling. <laughs> yeah, everything he did, Jack, he had this, like, boisterous, remember? He had this boisterous delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the hell of it. You know, he got to get rough, rightfully fucked with Stuart Granger because yeah. he was a dick in this. But 
highly enjoyable to me. And I, I'd always... No, it's, it's not a bad film at all. It's just the second half gets a little dull. No, it's not a bad film at all. I mean, for its time period, 1978, it's it's maybe to some audiences it might be uh, antiquated. But I, I, I think it, it still holds up pretty well. It's, the fact that Severin, I think, put it out says a lot. You know, it's not like they don't usually go for the stodgy stuff. They go for stuff that's got a little bit of meat to it. So. Right. And it was nice to see more in this. I was tired of fucking Roger Moore playing Roger Moore. You know, I grew up with Roger Moore. As Bond. Yeah, me too. Right. And the Saint. And Connery. Because Connery, you know, I was still in the... Oh, I love Connery, but I didn't see him much. He was... I think the first time I saw him other than on TV was Never Say Never Again when he came back. Oh, no. See, well, I'm a little older than you, so I saw Connery like uh, I was seven. You only lived twice. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever, seven. I was already 11. So, yeah, I I saw these things. But, yeah, I grew up with more. I was just... Yeah, it's a fun book. It's a fun book. Yeah. Which is why I, I having read the books, and, and people can go back to our, like, voluminous shows on Bond. Yes, the original one and the two-part revisiting one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they're a lot of fun, folks. Please pay attention to those. I, you should go and check them out. Well, that's why I mentioned these old shows, because a lot of them are really loads of fun, and people do like them. They're so. a lot of fun. We, we had such a ball recording those, and then... Not only that, they contain a wealth of information because we really did a lot of research. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's just like weird to see more doing this kind. Of, at the same time, it's like nice to see more do something outside of the envelope. Yeah. Next. All right. So next up, 1981, Tarzan the Ape Man. In the early 80s, there was a strange craze for remaking films from the past, particularly those based on jungle adventure pulp novels. Haggard and Burroughs both got films loosely and more or less directly based on their works, and Tarzan actually got two right around the same time. One I actually recall being somewhat decent, if a bit slow, and it actually won a few Oscars and kicked off the careers of future Highlander Christopher Lambert and rom-com starlet Andy McDowell, as well as the final role of the ghoul, Jesus of Nazareth, and Dragon Slayer Sir Ralph Richardson. This is not that film. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's well put. Rather than the award-winning Greystoke, which that was, and I'd seen it in the theater, this was a film once cited as one of the worst pieces of cinema ever lens, which is a blatant lie, at least in the face of the corporate film churn out lowest common denominator industry of the 90s to the present. Directed by the ever-smarmy, decidedly short-career John Derrick, also a fellow scraping the bottom vanity piece for his then-wife Bolero, this is, you guessed it, another attempt to show off his wife's only real talent, her not especially impressive but obviously gym-toned body, as she had in Blake Edwards' atrocious 10 two years prior. It's worth noting that she won the coveted Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Actor for both of John Derrick's films as well, and that Derrick was also known for directing an Annette Haven slash Leslie Beauvais porno, which Poe both produced and it very much was on hand for during the filming. So you get the idea here. Hapless de facto star Miles O'Keefe was actually the stunt coordinator on this one, but landed the role by Fiat when the original Tarzan quit. Parlaying his iffy work here into three Joe D'Amato actor films, which you talk about in our Joe D'Amato show, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight from a Sean Connery show, and the first waxwork film. Barbarella's John Philip Law is also on hand. Come on, my lovely black babies! So cries Harris is the father of Jane Parker, who has come to join him in the wilds of Africa where he resides with a local tribe and has taken a vaguely Laura Gemser-esque and Congressly Indian Desi-looking lover in pursuit of a legendary, quote, white ape. 
Six thousand miles to tell me what a bastard I am. Harris is slightly more subtle than he was in Robin and Marion, but still rather prone to mugging, inserting a lot of weird faces and undue meaningful changes of expression and character business in the course of a single two-shot discussion with his long-lost daughter. Later, he waxes absurdly Shakespearean in a tent chat about finding the White Eight, as if he were doing King Lear instead of trying to convince two people to come along. It's actually hilarious, though unlikely to be the reaction that Harris was hoping to elicit. Derek has to get wet a la 10, suggestively eats a banana in front of her future mate, and even stripped down by natives and made to squat on all fours while getting washed in slow motion and turned into a mud wrestler by them in front of her peeping father, purely for prurience's sake. Well, that's the reason to watch this film is that too. <laughs> yeah, see, that's why they made this film, was just for that. O'Keefe is as stilted as you'd expect from a stuntman turned unplanned lead, and Harris gets to pretend he's Kinski and Cobra Verde, or is that vice versa? And of course, we discussed that final Kinski Herzog collaboration on a show on Klaus a year or two back. While it's far from the worst film ever lends by a long shot, it really is bad, not to mention completely ridiculous. Think of this one as a chaser to the canon King Solomon's Mines with Shogun's Anjin-san Richard Chamberlain and a blonde bush-flashing Sharon Stone and companion to the air-headed Tanya Robert Sheena, and you may actually get a kick out of this absurdity. I did. Well, you mentioned Bush. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to be purient, but not that kind of show. <laughs> Back, back in the late, back <laughs> in the 70s, early 80s, I just name-checked or dropped Golden Age Adult Film. You know, I, not shaving was a thing. You know, I was like, people like that. You know, like, people, people like slurping and derp at the, at the end. And <laughs> I don't know, I just made that up. <laughs> and, and Bo Derek was this hairy beast with big breasts. And we know that. And she was, she was pretty toned. And um, her breasts weren't that big. She was just toned and prone to taking her clothes off. But no, she looked fine. What you want doors? You knock on the door. Of course. You're. <laughs> anyway, to be serious. Uh, <laughs> it's hard with this one. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, not that. No, no. <laughs> uh, these are all appropriate jokes if you've seen Tan. Or yeah, Tan, yes, but also this one. These are appropriate jokes. It's, it's appropriate, folks. Please don't ban It's us. pertinent to Tarzan the Ape Man, trust us. Yeah, last thing we were on our fucking Facebook. We were... I'm fucking Karen. Oh, my God! I'm from Georgia, and I listen to this show. I have 19 kids, I weigh 420 pounds, and, and oh, my God. So and they say bad things about Jesus, Donald Trump, Christ. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't immediately get us back. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so John Derrick, who, interesting fellow. I, I don't even know what's up with that guy. You know, I know you and I both know a lot about him as much as we can. He's a big mystery. <laughs> and how she hooked up with him is a big mystery. How she stayed with him is a big mystery. And before her was Linda Evans, and then he had another. He had like three blondes. Yeah, 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 Linda Evans and her. But and then his his foray into pornography, which is interesting, which you mentioned. You mentioned that. I wasn't well, she, going to. She it. produced it and she was on set. So it's like not like, okay, well, he did it and she didn't know about it. I was like, no, they were in on it together. That's the kind of couple well, they yeah, are. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ten is. Blake Edwards' Ten is a really interesting film. And, and we covered that at some point in something. I'm not sure if we did, but. but... No, Ten. <laughs> Did we? I don't think no. so, no. No, you mentioned it so Oh, yeah, often. I'm sure we mentioned it. 
I'm sure it did. But yeah, Richard Harris is what's the term? Bloviating. Yes, very much bloviating. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. When you get an actor who's done theater, stage, and Shakespeare, he's done some Shakespeare. It's really good work. And you say you could have made a movie of my big titted wife, and, and... <laughs> you get to stare at her while she's naked and make her up like a mud wrestler. We could do it in slow motion, and you're supposed to be your yeah, father. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do stuff like that. <laughs> and Richard's like, where's where's the barbin? What was that ridiculous thing they could make him say? It was like. Oh, think of when you're on, you know, on a Paradise Island. Oh, it's okay. Now look, they're they're coating you with bird feathers. You're you're gonna fly away. I, I, I think he's starting <laughs> to get fucking blind drunk on his set. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. Sense. It's a shame, though, because in a way, it's it's a come down. You know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they could have done something. Somebody else could. The one with Christopher Lambert is better. Mm-hmm. By default. It's boring, it's but it's much, yeah. No. It's a, it's, a, it's a shame. I think it's his most over-the-top performance beyond Robin and Marion, which was actually worse. <laughs> but he wasn't in much of it, thankfully. So, High Point, 1984. Harris's last film of any interest, as far as I'm concerned, comes as late as 1984, though Europe got an earlier, more goofy version two full years prior. Harris is a hapless accountant who automated and downsized himself out of a corporate job, something sadly all too common in this rather wrong-headed bean-counting stockholders above staff day and age, who takes an odd job for some rich one-percenters to, quote, keep an eye on the oddly cute wild child Beverly D'Angelo of the Vacation Series, who equally oddly manages to fall for the post-middle-age and rather nebbishy Harris. The sort of action part of all this comes from the family being targeted by the mob, represented by two sub-home alone goons, one being a young Maury Chaikin of the decisive Timothy Hutton Nero Wolf, as well as the CIA, because the absent husband built both organizations of millions. Harris is a patently bizarre choice for a lead in this sort of 80s-style action-slash-crime comedy, which at the time was more the province of comparatively young SNL alumni like... Chevy Chase, Fletch, Spies Like Us, Billy Crystal, Running Scared, Eddie Murphy, 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop, Joe Piscopo, Wise Guys, Dead Heat, or Dan Aykroyd, Blues Brothers, Dr. Detroit, Dragnet. Not an aging, bombastic Shakespearean overactor from the UK. Further, the film actually started shooting way back in 1979. It wasn't released until 1982 in the UK, with a major cast change or two along the way. I think they were going to have Catherine Ross in there. And apparently, British audiences hated it. When New World picked it up, presumably as part of a package acquisition, it was deemed unreleasable and, quote, heavily re-edited into the version released here, both theatrically and on blue. It certainly has its moments, particularly if you don't mind a little light comedy and the sort of films mentioned earlier, especially the type where hapless guys get pulled in over the heads in pursuit of a woman with serious problems, like the fun Jeff Goldblum Michelle Pfeiffer flick Into the Night. You should enjoy this for all its many faults, particularly if you have a thing for D'Angelo, but otherwise, you can probably avoid it. What's your take? And, and what has happened to Beverly D'Angelo? I don't know. We, we haven't seen much from her. No, it's been a while. Yeah, uh, yeah, I have to agree with you. Uh, everything you said about this film is like... It's had a lot of issues. I mean, reportedly, the original cut was so bad. They had to wipe the music. I'm like... <laughs> 
How big in the fucking music video? Well, I think, I never watched it, but I think on the Blu-ray, they actually have it as an extra, like a really bad copy of the cut, but I couldn't sit through it. I didn't care. Uh, the original yeah, yeah. bad enough the way it is. <laughs> they, call, they called in Christopher Young, who, who worked on Hellraiser uh, back in the day. It was about the time around Hellraiser anyway. And they called Christopher Young to come in and be like, can you please write us a score? <laughs> I mean... How bad can the original score be? Oh my gosh. I think oh. from what little I heard, it was really goofy comedy type stuff, like silent movie, but way worse than that. More comedy and stupid kind of like, do, 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 do. <laughs> Yeah, stuff you can do on a Casio? Oh, worse. I, mean, I think it was actually as more like. As opposed uh, to like a Yamaha? Yeah, like a Chaplin <laughs> film or a burlesque film. Kind of <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Richard kept working after this, unfortunately. <laughs> He, he went to the Philippines for Strike Commando 2 with yes. Rev Brown. Captain America from 1970s. Yes. Yeah, Rev's a really nice guy. Uh, you guys on Facebook, uh, Rev Brown's a really nice, sweet guy. Don't give him any shit. He's, he's a nice guy. And then Richard did, suddenly he aged. And uh, no, seriously, suddenly by 1990, it's, legend has it, Richard stopped drinking. Richard had stopped drinking. First he stopped doing blow and then he stopped drinking. And he suddenly aged decades. Which says a lot. It's like when you try, like, oh, you know what, I think I'm going to lose some weight, and also you look like you're 100 years old. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so he was in this Jim Sheridan film called The Field, and uh, he played an Irish farmer. He was nominated for lots of awards. Academy Award, Best Actor, and Golden Globe, Best Actor. Was it a pity thing, or was it actually a good performance? No, it was a good performance. I saw that. It was a heavy drama thing. Oh, it's just like, it's funny, you know, I, I, I put this out there with no evil, no malevolence, no all jokes aside. Some of the best actors, when they stopped drinking, fell apart. Yep. Fell apart. True. They, they made a decision for their health. Yeah. Et cetera. I'm going to stop drinking like a fucking fish. <laughs> I added that, and I want to live. You know, I want to keep working or creating or whatever. And and suddenly the health gave out. No, folks, don't get me wrong. I'm saying alcohol keeps. <laughs> well, and look at the same thing happens a lot with the musicians, because especially in the psychedelic era, you know, people doing all this ass and stuff, and they record these excellent friggin' albums that we still talk about, and then they kick it or go straight or whatever, and they do nothing. It's all shit. Or they, their career ends, or they just become a homebody. Like, well. Okay, so maybe there's something to not changing your lifestyle. I don't know. <laughs> it could be. I mean, it could be. No, no, we're not advocating that. No, Ser- no. Seriously. But, no, yeah. no. At all. No. I, and I, Lewis, is not. But it's something I've taken note of. Yeah. Because it's like... I've seen it enough times. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we've seen it enough times all over the place. It's it's like, we're not advocating giving up your vices, be they severe or not. Uh, it's just like you got to do what you got to do for your personal life and your health but you know if you're a creative type and you're doing a lot of good stuff mm, you know you better watch out if you you straighten yourself out because you might lose everything I I would just take a quick note of Richard Harris was in Unforgiven Clint Eastwood's 1992 film which was a terrific movie he played English Bob he had an interesting role in that I'm going to bring it up in the Eastwood show after that he did a lot of smaller parts. He started to take ill more and more so. He was in Gladiator, Ridley Scott film, with a still buff, not fat Russell Crowe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the fuck happened to Russell Crowe. Right after this, he's like, I'm going to eat and drink till I die. Like Gerard Depardieu or uh, Steven Seagal? 
probably like Gerard. Yeah. I think, oh my know, God. Lately, I see Russell's been making these movies. Like he made he made some good movies recently, but like, dude, what's up with you? <laughs> um, I I will include you in a couple of these movies. We, we should we should cussle. Put down the cupcakes. No, he was a really Scots. Richard Harris was a really Scots gladiator. Terrific, terrific movie. I mean, I can't say anything bad about that film. It's got issues, but that being said, but then he was in a couple of Harry Potter movies. Oh God! And he was embarrassed about that. He didn't want that to be part of his legacy. Like I'm gonna be remembered for these damn things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But well, he did it for. Oh wait, no, he didn't do it for a paycheck, right? Didn't he do it because of his grandson? Because he was a fan well, of that? He did it for the grandson. Yeah. He was a fan. Right. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. But he started to become more and more ill. And um, I believe he had liver disease, which is not surprising. Not <laughs> no, that's a shame. But, yeah. uh, you know, he was an outstanding presence for many years. And, and oh, my gosh. What? We didn't mention his albums. Yes. <laughs> Please do. Part of that skit in FCTV that I mentioned earlier on Mills Brockville where he came there frugging to MacArthur Park that was referencing his music career at the time. Unbelievably, Richard Harris had a fucking music career as a singer. And he admitted he couldn't sing when he got cast for Camelot. I was like, oh, well, you know, I'll just kind of act through it. Well, no, so. but, you know, <laughs> he, he did it. He pulled it off. And he pulled it off. And, and you know what? He had a couple of albums. <laughs> well, hey, you know what? Right. Are they Shatner-esque? More power, more power to the guy. I think he was better than Shatner. How about Nimoy? Better than Nimoy. Come on. No, it was like poetry with an edge, as how as kindly as I can say it. That's what Shatner did on the Transform Man. Uh, much better. Yo, what was Richard Harris's big thing? MacArthur Park. And, and, and you're like, are you fucking kidding me, Lewis? No, I kid you not. And you know what? This was such a thing, such a thing. We, we have to end on this, but this was such a thing that Jimmy Webb, who was a songwriter for Glenn Campbell, the Monkees, other guys, Jimmy Webb wrote this song, and uh, he gave it to Richard Harris. And he says, you know, why don't you try this? And, you know, Richard Harris is like, I'm an actor. I don't do sing. No, no, no. Slow down your delivery. We'll get your full fucking orchestra. In 1968, they released a single. This thing was huge. It was like number one. Number one. It was. And it, it was, was like... <laughs> you hear it sometimes when these have oldie stations, like, uh, what was the CBS FM? They would play it. So, does anybody <laughs> know what a dirge is? Dirge is like a really slow song. Funereal. It's actually funeral music. Yeah, yeah, funereal. But, like, some of us goth kind of associate people like this. So. And... Yes. So... It's like and do metal people. And do metal people, yes. You know, like that. And it was huge. It was fucking huge. <laughs> like, huge. So who the fuck covers Richard Harris's MacArthur Park? Donna Summer. Summer. <laughs> In a not unfamiliar version. <laughs> yes. Yep. Another one that they play all the time. Not necessarily on uh, oldies radio, but disco and R&B yeah, yeah. stations. But, but it's very close to his version, and it's almost like... Well, she sings it a little more. 
No, she sings it, but but it's based on his version. Wasn't it, wasn't that a Burt Bacharach song originally? Well, Burt, because the lyrics of that thing are ridiculous. <laughs> Those of you who don't know MacArthur Park. MacArthur Park is what? melting in the dark. I left the cake out in the rain. <laughs> what the hell? Well, what, what you can do if you're lonely and, and if you're and drinking? Absolutely, no, no, miserable. No, besides yeah. playing uh, yeah. Eric Carvin's all by myself. It's miserable, it's raining, it's fucking really gross. Yeah. <laughs> playing the Carpenters, rainy days and Mondays? And what the, like the only suicide music in the Some family. people like that stuff. It's almost yeah. like you can't mess with the Carpenters right now. It's like You know, Richard Carpenter was a fantastic producer. That stuff in ABBA were probably the best produced things of that decade. But, you know... Do I like the music? I don't know. But... So you're a secret ABBA fan. I saw that. Oh, yeah. The There's no secret. I'm very open about it. I love ABBA. Are you open? Are you yeah. open? <laughs> well, not about that. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. What, what are you secret about? No, I just <laughs> so, Anyway, Richard passed not too long ago on October 25th, 2002. Yeah. 72. Is there anything else you would like to add to the show? Uh, how much blow Richard Carpenter did. It's actually funny because you would never think of that. They seem like very clean cut, and you know everybody knows about her problems that she had with her mother and everything. But you know Richard was always the songwriter and the stable one and the producer and whatever. He kind of bolstered him through. And even after she was gone, he kind of kept up the legacy and whatever. But yeah, he was uh, like everybody else in the '70s in creative entertainment, whether it be music or films, really kind of used the sniffy a little too much to his detriment. <laughs> So I'm actually surprised he oh, loses it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was common, though. It's not like anybody's surprised by well, that. Look at Bowie. Sadly to say, wasn't it true that she died? She was found in her fucking closet yeah. trying to starve herself? Nah, she was starving herself. She, was, she had the anorexia because of, you know, again, it's psychological shit because the mother was a fucking bitch. Yeah, but she was in the closet. Yes. Yeah. 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 She had problems. Oh but anyway... I mean, you saw about the Coke thing. With Fleetwood Mac, they made rumors, and the reason that the tracks don't sound right when you go to certain ones, they're more muffled or whatever, it's because they were doing so much blow. They're, like, dumping shit all over and, you know, lighting up on top of the, the masters, and the tapes got all fucked up. And they, they're all underwater. Everything's screwed up. So they did what they could with it. <laughs> and it was a classic. Everybody loves it. I mean, it's still a good album. But, yeah, if you listen to the mastering, it's like, oh, my God, it's all over the place. That was cocaine for you. And, of course, Bowie and his psychotic episode in L.A., and... The whole uh, Thin White Duke period, and yeah, which I love, by the way. That's actually my favorite Bowie, that era there between Diamond Dogs and Scary Monsters. It's like, that's Bowie today, not the earlier stuff. Yeah, but then the Bowie with Iggy period. Well, that's so part of that, yeah. That's yeah, funny. But, yeah, we talked all that in our uh, For Those Fallen show, because Bowie had just passed at that time. And we haven't talked his film careers. But anyway, that is our Richard Harris show. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little all-over-the-place drawing room chat on Richard Harris. Next time, we'll be talking Clint Eastwood, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a George Siegel show coming up, and we'll be eventually doing a Richard Burton one and David Cronenberg. There's somebody I suggested we should do today. I forget. We'll get to that in the next show. But anyway, if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. 
And, of course, it's thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. Uh, we're on iTunes, which you can look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. The ID, if you're particular, is 553-402-044. We're on Spotify. We're on Amazon Podcasts. Again, look for us under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network. I should say it again, like Richard Harris, now on Podbean. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Actually, uh, not a lot of respect is given to Richard Harris. And, uh, you know, hopefully amidst the jocularity and such, we all we pay some respect to some of his good work. Yeah. He was not a schmuck actor. He just no. tended to keep his Shakespeareanism in roles that didn't necessarily require it. But not always. Sometimes he could rein it in. He was actually very good, like Juggernaut. Well, yeah, that's the thing. And some of these actors who actually starred out on stage, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm going to leave you with this note before we sign off. When you start as a stage actor, you're on the stage and you are trained to initiate into your being. You have to speak to the back row. The back row. Yeah, exactly. You know exactly what I'm saying. And you must enunciate. You must enunciate. You have to speak to the back row. And some of these guys from different areas with different accents were... Uh, this goes back to the oeuvre of everybody we've talked about over the years. And it will again when we do Richard Burton. Yeah, over the 10 years we've been doing this, is that a lot of these guys have been told or suggested to them, try to lose your accent. Even the guys who came from Brooklyn, Al Pacino. Yep. Or Tony Curtis. Or Tony Curtis, right? We did a great Tony. We did it. Yeah, we did a great Tony Curtis show. Great. One of the great shows we did was Tony. And Al Pacino. Speaking of Al Pacino. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure. And these guys worked with some of the best in New York because these guys took no shit. Yeah. These acting directors took no shit, and especially in New York. Oh yeah, you got to kid me. (laughs) Yeah. And and they were like, "What the fuck you doing?" <laughs> Probably not in that style. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you know, Pacino. You know. <laughs> it's funny when I finally saw Godfather two or three. The famed acting director, uh, Strasberg. Yes, thank you so much, Lee Strasberg. Who was in tonight's show? We talked about him in the Cassandra Crossing. Lee Strasberg has always been considered by many, by many, one of the great acting directors. Yeah, it, he invented the method. Yes, exactly. Thank you. So, to people who come from around the world, around the world, to to work with him, it's, it wasn't like a monetary thing. It's like, if you're okay, if you totally fucking suck, get out of here. But if you have any intuence of being okay, I'll work with you. I think that's how he worked. If you were just totally rotten, he just wouldn't waste his time. Oh, yeah. Now, the, the method was a serious thing at the time. It's yeah. from the 50s to the, I guess, the 70s. And there are people I've noticed coming out today like, who likes method acting. But method acting had a thing because it was like, you want to inhabit this persona. Method really annoys me because people go over the top like De Niro and they really kind of embody that. Or like when uh, Stallone, who we did a show on, decided to put on all that weight for Copland. It's kind of ridiculous. But, you know, there are some really good actors that came out of that. I think Stallone did that because he was at such a tough crossroads he was willing and it worked for him because it, it really revitalized him oh yeah but yeah it was tough you know some people will do things and become self-destructive like jimmy dean yeah. for example or some people that just kind of flip out like margot kidder or uh, sean young or something you know this, a lot of this goes down to the method yeah, yeah. you gotta be careful you don't lose yourself being become inhabiting the character exactly <laughs> so anyway 
Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes, as crazy as it was tonight. <laughs> no, I, I, I think this is probably giving me spirit for the next few because this is what we're going to be doing with the next few, I think. Yeah, very much so. so our next I one, mean, this is probably one of the shorter ones, but yes. It's fine. But yeah, so uh, that's basically it. We will see you again shortly for our Clint Eastwood show. Clint Eastwood, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I like Clint Eastwood, so I... Uh, He's become a joke, but he definitely did some movies that I always loved and still do. And, you know, other ones that I still think are fun and gorgeous aesthetically, like, you know, some of those Dirty Harry movies. But then again, you know, there's issues with them, so we'll address all that next time. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say become a joke, personally, but, yeah, we'll get to that. So, thank you. He has, but that's just now. (laughs) How would you? Come on, the empty chair debate? We'll talk about that, too. So anyway, thank you for listening so much. We appreciate it. Appreciate your patronage. <laughs> yes, of course, as always. All right. So we will see you next time around. Thank you. All right. Good job. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. 
What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. Hello. So, how are you? Can you hear me? Yeah, you get the same hollow thing as last time, but... Really? I wonder why that is. It sounds like you're talking into it like that. It's so strange. So, anyway, how are you? (laughs) Oh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> no, I, I, I went over to my mother's place. Uh, I speak out a couple of hours. It's exhausting. The missus said, oh, we can put everything in garbage bags. It'd be easier when they clean the place. It's impossible. It's just impossible. But we got a lot done. But just, you know, after a couple of hours, like, no, no more. 
I can hear that. We did a lot of that shit with my grandfather's house, and that was just after my grandmother died, and he decided to move out with his sister to California until he <laughs> wound up killing her off. We actually think she used to take this, like, diet powder out there. Mm-hmm. We went out there once, you know, years ago in Sacramento, they lived. And, um, you know, this was his sister, and he lived out here in New York, and she was way the hell out there for years. And after my grandmother died, he was by himself for a while, and he was like, yeah, okay, it's kind of lonely. He moved in with his sister. All right. Well... <laughs> She just takes this big giant box of diet powder in her uh, cabinet we remember seeing all the time and she would eat from. And it was weird. I don't even know what it was. You know, maybe it was like some kind of uh, spirulina fiber. Who knows? But that's what she dieted on, basically. She's a skinny woman. I don't know why she had to do this, but that's what she felt she had to do. Anyway, she, we think that, I don't know if my mother went out there, because I think she flew out there to see what was going on and take him back here. But there was like a thing of rat poison in there as well that looked kind of similar, like a big box of this stuff. And my father's theory was always, you know, I'll bet the son of a bitch, because he's, you know, not intentionally, just because he was old and dopey, might have gave her the rat poison instead of the diet powder one morning, because she was fine. And all of a sudden he goes out there, and within three months, we had just gone through this whole thing, cleaning out the house, you know, my mother crying and stuff, because she's losing all this crap. You know, it was supposed to be delivered to her, but she was really young when my uh, great-grandfather died, and that's who left it to her. But, you know, because she was young, they left it in care of the mother. And the mother left it to the father, which was, you know, him. And then he said, you know what, I'm just going to sell the house off. So she got jack out of this, really. Clean all the crap out, sold the house off. And then within months, I says, you know, this is not a great idea because you know what's going to happen. He's going to, she's going to wind up dying off at some point. I didn't know so soon. And he's going to say, you know what, I want to move back here. I don't have any place to live. And we're going to have to take him in. And they were like, oh, I don't know, that'll never happen. I even drew a picture of him, like, I think I still have it somewhere. Because he was kind of, he didn't, like, <laughs> I guess he didn't wash his clothes enough or something. So he would often smell. You know, like, oh, God. So I had this picture. You never can tell when the smell from hell will ring your doorbell. <laughs> and it was him ringing the doorbell. I need a place to live. And it was a joke. They laughed about it. Sure enough, three months after he moves out there, <laughs> he moves in with us. And it was rough. Because it's tough enough having, like, an elder person in your house. But he was, I don't know, we have a lot of theories about what happened there. But he was not the same person I knew when I was growing up. He was more like she was, which is not cool. Very (sighs) passive-aggressive and shitty. And it was rough going. Me and my father got by by just basically mocking everything he said because it was all crazy shit. It literally was nuts. Like, one time I remember, this is a funny one. He goes on about, like, oh, yeah, you know, who's that woman? She's really hot. I have nothing for her. It's like, somebody recent, right? <laughs> my father goes, Mary Pickford? And he goes, oh, no, it's deadpan. Oh, no, more recent than that. You know who this beautiful person was that he was hot for? Ooh. Imogene Coca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we were laughing. We made jokes like that about him. Yeah, it's okay. We made it tolerable. And all of a sudden, my mother decided, oh, he doesn't like him because he, he was suspicious. You know, oh, I'll bet they mocked me, but he couldn't really figure it out. He's like, ah, he doesn't like this. You guys have to calm down. You guys start taking everything he says seriously. So we tried. And that really made it tough because then it was just a fucking irritating. And he lived with us for a couple of years. I don't know, maybe five, eight years. It was, wow, it was rough. So, yeah, this was all because <laughs> knowing what it's like to clean out a relative's house and then just, you know, losing everything and just do, all, all being for nothing, basically. Well, yeah, yeah. He frittered away all that money, too, just like my mother did to me. I'm positive of that. So we got nothing out of this. <laughs> I, I get it. That could have been an option with me. But, you know, it would, have, it would have meant moving her to another state. Moving her to a place where there's always stairs. Whether there's stairs from the street level to the apartment or a second, you know, and she couldn't walk anymore. 
Right. So it's not even an option, y'all. You know? mm-hmm. She couldn't even visit. Couldn't walk, yeah. Because she couldn't get around. We used to, when we went out there, we used to take her to her favorite restaurant and take a cab. It got so bad she couldn't walk, even with the assistance of a walker, mm-hmm. we couldn't take her out to a restaurant anymore. Yeah. It was like, well, I guess we're going to have to order in because she just literally, without an ambulance, which is like this mini ambulance, which has a, you know, they open the thing and you get on somehow, like a mm-hmm. lift. Yeah. It just got so bad. Yeah, he didn't get that way till later, but when he first moved that, he could still move around. Yeah. And he was a terrible driver. I mean, scared the shit out of me. He used to ride in the gutters. He <laughs> bam, 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 bam. Like, oh, my God, we're going to hit a tree. So I eventually had to take over driving his car for him, just driving around everywhere. But when he was, was thinking about with the walking thing was he could barely move around even then. So we went one time, we had had a long time ago when it was dirt cheap, we had season tickets to the Devils before they hit the Stanley Cup, you know, when they were just schmucks. Mm-hmm. So we used to go see them a lot. You know, I would go with my buddies, you know, just whoever the hell wanted to go that week, you know, if they had the tickets or whatever the game was. And we took him to one, and boy, was that a mistake. Because I don't know how he enjoyed the game or didn't enjoy the game. But walking back, you know, they got those big the channel. You, know, you can walk up the stairs there, and you go through this mm-hmm. long tunnel across the parking lot or the highway, and then it drops you down to the parking lot. Well, the whole way, not only is he moving at half a mile an hour, and we're, like, trying to move slowly with him, but you're, he's still, like, lagging behind. But he was pissed off and grousing and attacking, like, everybody that was walking around him. No matter how good-natured they were, you know, it wasn't just people bumping into him or whatever. Just people passing him. Oh, yeah, all you people, huh? Yeah, you got to slow down. You know, but, you know, really like, nasty shit he was saying there. But I'm like, wow, this is, he was really hard to take. <laughs> so be thankful in a way that your mother didn't have to move in with you, because you don't really know a person until you live with them. I wouldn't have allowed that to happen. I just couldn't. You know, I, I, I have friends, I mentioned this before to you, they've taken care of their mother, mm-hmm. their father, and uh, living with them. You know, I got a friend, my mother's 99, I kid you not. Wow. Their mother, they couldn't take care of them anymore. Yeah, this is it, exactly. And uh, one lady friend couldn't take care of her mother anymore. And then she was back and forth in the hospital so much. Finally, she's in the hospital again. And now she's not coming home, and the lady's all freaked out. Because, you know, and I actually, coincidentally, I just emailed her earlier today, trying to help her out. If you have a parent living with you, and you don't do the power of attorney, you're fucked. Yeah, it's definitely true. They're going to see, you have to pay for everything. You know, yeah. uh, you know. Well, that's what happened to us, because he had, we yeah. actually kind of know where a lot of his money went. Uh, he used to go out to a diner by himself locally, and made friends with one of the waitresses, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going into business. I'm going to do this out of my basement or whatever. And he gave her, we have to assume, just from what we've seen afterwards and everything else, he gave her, like, thousands of fucking dollars to do, like, nothing, just because he liked her because she was nice and was a waitress. So when the government came around, I was like, well, where did all this money go? You must have taken it. So they denied us, like, any kind of help. So all the money that we had to, you know, take care of him, we had to put him in a nursing home eventually, and then he wound up going into, like, the state hospital because he was that sick. All that stuff was on us. Plus, you know, what we have gone through with my father, plus, you know, everything else that was happening in life. So any money that we had had until then went right out the fucking window, and then, of course, my mother's shit money manager, so that was the end of it. But, you know, they, a lot of it was just him giving away fucking money to, like, strangers, and then us getting screwed for it. That's why I was so paranoid with my mother, because she pulled the same crap. We found so when we took over power of attorney for a while, yeah. which she wanted us to do, 
we found in her records that she was making checks to cash, left and right, hundreds and thousands of dollars. What the fuck? Plus, we think her husband's family stole a bunch of money. Yeah, it's like, I don't think when she kicks off, we're going to get anything, to be honest with you. We just made sure that, okay, we're not going to get her debt, right? All right, good enough, I guess. Wow. Well, I went, I went to Hoboken today. Our bank was in Brooklyn, so I said, let me deal with that. And I, I called them, and they said, oh, can you come in? I'm like, come on, I'm in New Jersey. <laughs> But they said I can go anywhere with the death certificate. So I went to this empty, empty. They kept saying there were four people, one of them including a lady who was in charge of the bank. There's three people working there and her, the boss. There were no customers. And it was 12 o'clock. Would you like to sign up? I'm looking around like, you guys saw them? (laughs) Is it like a money market or something crappy like that? I'm like, geez, nice looking bank, but there's no money in there. (laughs) <laughs> that says something right there. You know? So I showed them everything, told them why I was there. I said, I want to close these accounts as soon as possible. Turned out, I didn't know this. My mother had put me on the account, and there was some money, not much. I sit for like an hour while they tried to, you know, are you who you say you are? Yeah, yeah, I get that part. You know, gave me the certificate and all this stuff. And uh, it wasn't much at all. It was, it was a couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. Is that, there's nothing else? <laughs> you know, like, oh, whatever, okay. And she goes, no, it's really good you did this because the longer you wait, anyone else is going after her assets. These accounts are closed. Well, not like you got much anyway, but yeah. No, right. <laughs> but, you know, there'll be issues. So like, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. So it's all done. Yeah. All this shit is rough as the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be avoided if you can. Yeah. <laughs> you can avoid. That's the trick. <laughs> All right, so test this so we can do our show. Okay. Well, hello. I wasn't expecting you. <laughs> well, hello. <laughs> if I knew you were coming, I would have baked the cake. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I might, oh, by the way, I might get a new audio thing configure system. And look at this. You know, I was just telling you I was trying to help somebody out today. Yeah. So she was like, Virtually crying, I'm going to be homeless, they're going to take all my money, my, my house has a reverse mortgage, so I may search that. Tried to find how pro bono attorneys, you know, people that yeah. work for us. Legal aid, yeah. Right, legal aid. And so I sent her all these links today. You know, it was not like I got a lot of fucking free time, my friend. Yeah, right. But I said, let me help this person out. Oh, my brother's going to look into this. No. <laughs> I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's the problem. It's like nowadays, I mean, I don't know if it was always this way, but it seems like it's a lot worse. People bite the hand that feeds. It's like, wait a minute. It's almost like, I don't want to get into too much of this shit, but it's like that student loan thing. It's like, look, you guys got thousands of dollars back, tens of thousands of dollars, and you want more? Like, um, I know this stuff is lousy nowadays, and it got much worse than it used to be, but I didn't get that. I would be, like, thanking them on my fucking knees. Like, thank you very much for giving me 10000 bucks plus. Yeah. You know, really? Oh, no, I want more. You suck. Fuck you, then. And it's amazing because my wife is even saying, you know what? The best thing we're going to do is not cut any of this debt. Just say no interest. You know, all you guys, fuck you. No more predatory loans. You get any interest on your college loans. All right. So you pay what you were supposed to pay that you knew you were going to do when you went in. You just don't get screwed with this, you know, constantly mounting interest that was real, the real crux of the problem. And hopefully everybody's happy. And if they're not, it's the same situation we got now where they're complaining for getting a handout. Here, let me give you something. Fuck you. Well, <clears throat> All right, well, fuck you too. You know, what are you supposed to? How are you supposed to react to that? Anyway, 
right, let's go into it. All right, so. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. Fucking Downton Abbey. <laughs>